And so I think I just, you know, went out on a limb and said, well, like, I hope that I am not going to die because of this choice, but I'm just going to wait until maybe you guys talk, (laughs) decide, right? Like if I want, if I'm going to have like surgery for a lung cancer, right? Or, you know, palliative intent chemotherapy for a metastatic breast cancer. Like those seem pretty different. So I guess I'm just going to wait until you call me back, right? Not otherwise specified has always been one of my favorite phrases in medicine. Not just because it's a fancy way of saying we don't really understand the root cause of something, but also because it captures this human impulse to put tidy labels on things that remain largely unknown. In NOS, I talk with some of medicine's most innovative thinkers to probe some of these messy unknowns behind our healthcare system, its players, and the stories that shape their lives. NOS makes time for the types of in-depth conversations that may not leave us with easy answers, but that shed fresh light on medicine's toughest challenges, as well as the people envisioning its future. I'm Lisa Rosenbaum, and you're listening to Not Otherwise Specified from the New England Journal of Medicine. My guest today is Shakina Elmore. She's a radiation oncologist at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where she's also an assistant professor in both radiation oncology and urology. Her research focuses on global health inequities as well as health disparities, particularly as they pertain to prostate cancer. She's dedicated to pursuing equity and empathy in oncology care. She's also survived multiple cancers herself, and her experiences as a patient deeply inform her approach to patient-centered care. I recently sat down with Shakina to discuss those personal experiences of illness and how they've shaped her as a physician and a patient advocate. We talked about the role of narrative in the way she lives her life, what our fragmented healthcare system can learn from her, and her dedication to true shared decision-making. Every once in a while, someone pops into your life who changes, even just a little bit, how you see the world. Shakina is one of those people for me. I met Dr. Shakina Elmore when she was an intern in her prelim year of radiation oncology, rotating through the cardiology service. And I have a lot of wonderful memories of those two weeks, but there is one memory for some reason in particular that always stands out to me. We were caring for a patient who had an endovascular infection and he was miserable and angry and threatening to leave every day. And I was really unable to connect to him and had basically sort of given up. And I remember one day on rounds, Shakina uh, focused the entire plan on the fact that he did not like his muffin that morning and that she wanted to make sure that we got him food that he liked. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, you know, first of all, can you talk to me about the ventricular tachycardia and the antibiotics? And also, good luck. Um, (laughs) We'll see how that goes. (laughs) And then I'll never forget when I walked into his room the next morning, he was sitting there happily eating his breakfast and he was truly a new man. And I thought to myself at that moment, Shakina Elmore has some magic and I want to understand what that magic is. And I am lucky enough to have gotten to get to know you a little bit in the years since, but I am excited to welcome you on the podcast to sort of share a little bit of your journey and uh, your magic with the rest of us. So welcome. Oh, what a wonderful (laughs) introduction. And I feel like I had forgotten that memory and just like in retrospect, like how ridiculous and lovely in a way it is that this like prelim intern is like focused on the muffins on on a cardiology floor. Um, Like what a what a lovely, ridiculous memory. And I love it because I think like I haven't changed. So that's good. Like I I don't think I've changed. (laughs) I hope you haven't changed. I do feel like I do feel like that changed me. I mean, I think about this all the time about in terms of how do you teach empathy? And I don't think it can be taught. But once in a while, something happens to you that stays with you. And I truly I think of that as the muffin day. And I it pops in my head all the time when I feel like I'm about to give up. And then I think about 
what you did and I try to understand it. And and so it stayed with me. So so thank you. I think that is one of the reasons why I really love working with undergraduates, medical students, like early career residents, because I think that they bring up insights that I'm like, well, obviously, like, that's not the right thing to be focused on. <laughs> like, this person has much bigger problems. Um, but then I always check myself a little bit with that. And I'm like, well, maybe that is a, exactly the right thing to be focused on. And um, I'm just too enmeshed in the details to figure out like what someone else, like what might be the entry point for a patient. No, you're exactly right. That is exactly what you brought to me. And I was completely enmeshed in the details that I thought were the most important. And I think in the end they weren't because I don't think that he would have stayed unless you had done that. So so thank you for that and for pulling me out of my like myopic focus. Um, so I wanted to start just with the most basic aspects of your life. What what made you want to be a doctor in the first place? I think I was initially like really put off of medicine um, by some of the stories that I had um, as a child, you know, getting care for my pediatric cancer. So I had pediatric rhabdomyosarcoma when I was seven, and then it came back again when I was like in my early teens. Um, and the first time when I was seven, I had just had an open heart surgery um, unrelated to the cancers, but I had an atrial septal defect. Um, and so I had this big open heart surgery because that was sort of the state of the art at the time, right? Not interventional cardiology, um, but kind of a big chest splitting surgery. Um, so it was that experience and then the experience with um, this pediatric oncologist and they were just not good experiences. I think they were not good for me as a child. They weren't good for my family. Um, I think that, you know, both doctors were probably technically really excellent at what they did. But I think, as you said, like there was, you know, quite a conflict, I think, between my family and the oncologist just because like they're kind of bedside manner, I guess you would colloquially call it, or the way that they interrelated with me and my family were just so... Um, they, you know, they really terrified my parents. I think that they were reluctant to give real information about what the treatments were going to be like and, you know, really were sort of like, you know, this is it and um, kind of suck it up and like, let's go forward. And, you know, I think that that's something that my parents, you know, really reluctantly accepted. Um, I think I, you know, never really wanted to be a doctor because, you know, in my view, it just seemed like doctors um, had a lot of knowledge, but really caused a lot of trouble and caused a lot of suffering to people. Um, you know, that was really my view as a kid. Um, so I really thought I would be like either a musical theater actor or a basic scientist. I think those were the two things <laughs> that were most interesting to me when I was like in middle school and high school. Um, you know, I just I loved inquiry and I also loved like singing and performing. I'm a little curious about sort of the way your memory of this time serves you and particularly how it illuminated this aspect of, of medicine for you because because you were so young. And so how how did you piece it together in terms of your parents who sort of were able to give you a normal life? And there must be memories you have of, you know, being in a clinic or a hospital and something about that was like viscerally aversive to you. But I imagine at seven years old, it was hard to put together what about it was so off-putting. Do you remember, do you remember specifics or do you feel like you put it together in retrospect? No, I definitely remember the specifics. I, I remember going in for a heart catheterization that discovered that there was, you know, a hole in my heart, you know, as colloquially it is. Um, I remember, you know, getting poked a thousand times because my veins were too small, you know, to find a good vein for that. Um, you know, I remember the lovely interventionalist, uh, bless them, who told me while I was still groggy from anesthesia at seven that I had a hole in my heart, right? Like things like that where you're just like, that's totally inappropriate. 
Like, why would you why would you tell? Like, because, again, I was like, you know, a precocious little child. So I had a lot of words and I could ask a lot of questions. Right. But like totally developmentally off to like leave a groggy child under anesthesia with that knowledge. Right. I actually remember, you know, in I guess I haven't changed um, <laughs> running from the anesthesiologist when they were like about to put me under for my heart surgery. Like I remember just like deciding that I was like going to run away. Wow. Um, and then they like gave me like an extra sleepy syrup. I remember the next time that I came in and I, they were like, just drink this. And I was like, what is it? And they were like, don't worry about it. And I was like, oh, I get it. You didn't want me to run. But right, like if you didn't want a child to like run away from something that's like objectively terrifying, you know, and this was a time when I think things were less friendly than they are now. Like my mom wasn't with me back in the pre-op holding area. It was just me. They never felt like environments that were at all like healing that were going to make me better. Right. Because as a kid, you're just like, well, I feel fine now. And then I go to this place where people are kind of mean to me and make me very sad and cause me like physical harm, it feels like. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it just never like squared up to me. Um and I, my cancer came back, my rhabdomyosarcoma. And this time I was really fortunate to have a pediatric oncologist um, who really was kind of everything I think you'd want in a doctor in terms of like he was so, you know, the technical excellence, right? Like I can't necessarily judge that from the outside, but probably just as technically excellent as the prior pediatric oncologist, but, you know, really had the bedside manner, you know, treated me like a kid who was going to be scared. You know, he happened to also have interest in um, musical theater and opera and actually was, you know, performed in um, the chorus of an opera. And so I got to see him perform. Um, The contrast was just so immense. Um, And it was, I think, for me, the first time that I saw that you know, oh, you can be like a human being and a doctor together. <laughs> like you don't have to like give away your humanity at the door. Um, and so I think that was that was why I, I found my way to medicine was it was really because of him and, you know, others that sort of showed me that was possible. Mm. So then let's fast forward. You you were doing public health. Right. And then you decided, though, that you wanted to apply to medical school. And you got accepted at a bunch of medical schools. And then you get diagnosed with not not one, but but two cancers. And so I would I I would like to hear a little bit about how it affected your decision about whether or not to go into medical school at that juncture. It was sort of while I was on the interview trail that I kind of noticed that there was a lump. Um, you know, I wasn't sure I had just gone in for my annual with my PCP and they had done an exam. So I was like, you know, I'm probably just imagining this, um, but it didn't feel right. And I was like, oh, I really want to get this checked out. Um, so it was kind of simultaneously that I was, you know, really excited to be starting the pathway to medicine. You know, again, I, I love public health and it's still a big part of the way that I research and practice. Um, but I, I did find myself like not really able to get away from kind of that interpersonal interaction that I do find so magical, um, honestly. And so I was really excited to be having some acceptances, trying to make the decision of where to go um, for medical school. And at the same time, you know, getting this kind of triple hit diagnosis where it's like, oh, you do have a breast lump and it looks suspicious. Oh, it seems like you have a locally advanced breast cancer Actually, it seems like you probably have a metastatic breast cancer, Um, you know, and I think that was obviously just like such a destabilizing time because, right, it's like you're you're sort of like, well, what do I do now? Um, But I think that, you know, thankfully, I guess it's such a strange thing to say. Um, I had two cancers that were both, you know, potentially curable. You know, my lung nodule turned out to be a early lung cancer, which is usually not good news, but it was sort of relatively good news in this case. And I think I got, you know, a lot of advice of like, you should probably take some time to rest um, before you think about starting medical school. 
And I think for me, it didn't fit because I think I was just like, um, it was very affirming to me to like be on this pathway. Like, I think it's like sort of what was like driving my purpose was that I was like, oh, I have all this insight and interest and I like really want to get on this pathway you know, because if my time is short, which it probably will be shorter than maybe whatever the quote average person is, like I want to start on that pathway. Um, and I guess I just thought, you know, if I fail out of medical school, like that probably won't be the worst thing in the world, right? I just was like, I'll I'll try and fail, and you know, maybe that'll help me more, um, just in my own personal process then kind of taking a year to reflect. Yeah, I think reflection is like way overrated personally. <laughs> like who needs to sit around That's thinking quite... who they are? I mean, it just leads to just a lot of pain sometimes. But one thing I want to hear a little bit more about from you is like you were told that you had metastatic breast cancer when in fact you ended up having a primary breast tumor and a, and a primary lung tumor. And as I've heard you say before, <clears throat> surprisingly, that was actually good news for you. But yeah. it wasn't good news that that came easy. You had to work hard to get to that diagnosis. And at a juncture where you where you weren't already, you know, a doctor. So can you talk a little bit about that and what gave you the courage to sort of advocate for yourself? Yeah, I had, you know, some biology knowledge and I was a pre-med and I had had prior cancer treatment, but I, you don't know, I guess, how much you don't know about how the medical system works, I think, from the outside. Like, I had no idea, like, how to really advocate for myself. Um, and I think I, you know, frankly, was also exhausted. Like, I... Um, you know, really, it was sort of by the grace of a second opinion that this was all uncovered. Um, and I didn't want to get a second opinion. Like I actually, it was sort of my friends and family um, and some friends who were physicians that I worked with who really felt like you should get a second opinion, like one, because you're young and, you know, things like the treatment of oligometastatic cancer really were in their infancy then, you know, even though some of the first literature on the concept was in the 1990s, no one would have taken a patient like me and found it obvious that ah, they have a breast cancer that's local with one area outside of the breast, we should treat her for a cure. So that was one idea. But I think the second idea, you know, from, you know, one physician that I worked with at the time was just that, like, it's really important that you have a good relationship with your oncologist. And if you feel you don't have that, um, it doesn't matter how technically skilled they are or how good of a cancer center this is. Like, you should try to get a second opinion so that you can find someone that you feel comfortable asking questions to and that you feel um, will listen to you. I think it was it was challenging afterward because I think I had heard that I had metastatic breast cancer, right, based on um, first, before there was even a biopsy. You know, I asked, like, again, naive novice question, like, is there anything else that this could be? And besides a metastatic breast cancer nodule in my lung and was told, no, there is nothing else that this can be. That's what it is. And I think that in the second opinion, the pathologist re-reviewed everything and said, I, you know, I think that it seems like that this is a lung primary, not not a breast primary. Right. And so then the other oncologist is telling me this and I'm like, well, as many patients come to me, like, I don't know who to believe. Right. Mm. And I think as a doctor, it certainly influences how I approach discussions like that, because I'm like, right, it's not your I, it's not your job as the patient, in my view, to figure out which of us is correct. Like we need to figure that out between us. Right. And I do think that the two oncologists talk to each other. But kind of as I was waiting for that to happen, because I was supposed to start this chemotherapy that was palliative, like in a couple days, mm. I called and I finally like get them on the phone and I was like, well, this is what X cancer center said. Like, do you think that that could be right? 
And they were like, well, no, I don't. I don't think so. (laughs) And so I think I just, you know, went out on a limb and said, well, like, I hope that I am not going to die because of this choice. But I'm just going to wait until maybe you guys talk. (laughs) Decide, right? Like if I want, if I'm going to have like surgery for a lung cancer, right? Or you know, palliative intent chemotherapy for a metastatic breast cancer. Like those seem pretty different. So I guess I'm just going to wait until you call me back. Right. And I got a call like a couple of days later uh, that was basically like, Dr. X would like for you to schedule a consultation with this lung surgeon. Right. So it was just, you know, sort of, okay, so I guess we've decided, right. Like what this is, I guess, or maybe not. I, I don't know. Um, And so I think then it was sort of like a turning point for me a little bit that I was like, okay, I guess I am going to have to be a lot more of a driver of some of the parts of the the medical parts of my care than I would like to be. It's such an interesting dynamic, especially because now we talk so much about, you know, shared decision making and there's this push away from paternalism. And I know from having worked with you that in so many ways you embody the type of physician who is completely attuned to patient values and preferences and sort of tailoring care to those needs. But your story also highlights, I think, the importance, which often gets lost, of somebody being in charge and taking control and not leaving a set of decisions in somebody's lap that they are just, that there's no reason that they should be able to make on their own. Yeah, but it's so hard to do the thing that I was asking them to do, right? And again, it's not anyone's like, you know, mostly it's not intent to not want to do that. It's just like these are some systems problems, I think, that get passed on to us as physicians of just like, yes, like we should be engaging in multidisciplinary care. Um, And then shared decision making, I find so interesting. And like, that's been a big focus of like inquiry for me, Um, just because I think it's like learning about when is a shared decision appropriate, right? And that's often when it's like, there are two equivalent and like, you can define like how, how they're equivalent, but in terms of like quality of life, probably equivalent in the long term, or they're equivalent in terms of survival but they're very different in terms of experience, right? And so it's sort of like, I guess, if you're like remodeling your kitchen, right? Um, which I have never done, it seems really hard. But just like that, like you have a contractor, hopefully, right? And you have like people who might do the plumbing and people who might help with like the electrical wiring and all those things. And so like you could probably have like two pretty equivalent kitchens in terms of like you can have your pasta made and like you can bake a cake in those kitchens, right? But the experience of those kitchens is going to be radically different. And I don't know how to remodel a kitchen. Like, I can't get there. Like, I know what my kitchen, I want it to, like, look like or feel like, right? And I know that I want to be able to accomplish the goal of, like, baking a cake. But I really need the expertise of all of those other experts to get to that outcome. And so I feel like it's like the difference between like, I really want to be involved in my care, like the homeowner or like the person who's like, has a vision for like what they want to experience. But then, you know, the contractor might say like, you can't knock that wall down, right? Like that's a weight bearing wall. And I'd be like, what does that even mean? I don't know. (laughs) So we have to work around it together. But like, I trust that expertise, right? That like, I can't knock that wall down. Um, So I feel like that's like more of what I think about as a vision is like I would love to be like an advisor, an expert, like a navigator in some ways, like a coach in some ways. Um, And so not as like a paternalistic value of like this is what you have to do. But like here are the reasons why like knocking that wall down might not be what you actually want. I think, you know, it's just very hard to sort of toe that line between being the waiter and like, here are your options and you choose. Um, and then like the contractor who's like, here's my expertise. And like, this is why I don't think you should do this. And I think we just have to be careful because if you don't want to feel responsible for the decision the person makes, it is easier to just give them a bunch of choices and say, you decide. 
they think that relates to some of the role that you assume in the hospital and, you know, that you and I talked about. So now I want to read you a quote from a book by Rachel Aviv, who writes for The New Yorker and has just written a book called Strangers to Ourselves, because the quote reminded me a lot of themes that I've heard in some of your work. And that quote is, there are stories that save us and stories that trap us. And in the midst of an illness, it can be hard to know which is which. Can you talk a little bit about the role of narrative in shaping your experience of illness? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that narrative, narrative has saved my life. Like I don't, I, I think that that's not an overstatement in any way. Um, and I think it's not just like my own narrative, obviously the ways in which I have, you know, told and retold and, and tried to think about what the narrative is for my story. I think that, yes, it was sort of this time for me where I was trying to think about like, well, what does this all mean? Like, what are the narratives that are going to help me with this and through this? Um, and like, there might not even be a through this, right? So, you know, I think for me, I always say if, you know, when I die, like, if someone says that I lost my battle with cancer, like I will haunt them because I think that's not a narrative that helps me at all. Like, I think it, for me, that very much feels like um, that this is something that like, you know, with a genetic diagnosis that makes me so likely to have multiple cancers, to have more cancers in the future, and, you know, likely to die from my disease, like, that's not, like, the battle metaphor is not something that's going to make me feel like living my life in the way I was kind of made worthwhile. It just doesn't, right? Like, I've already lost. And I think the narrative for me as someone who has all of these insights, these like, you know, unwished for, <laughs> and I would totally give them back. If I could keep everything the same and not have had cancer, that seems like I would probably make that trade, right? Like, I don't want to have had these insights, but of course, like, past is prologue. And so... Like, is it possible that I could have given all this back and been the same person? Like, probably not. And so, like, you know, here we are. And I felt like when I was, you know, in the consultation room um, working with patients with cancer, like that I never talk about my own experience. I think that now, um, well, almost never. There are like very few exceptions but people can Google me now that I'm, you know, the attending that they see my name on the schedule. And, you know, I think it uh, people do tell me about like that they either watched a talk of mine or um, found about my experience in another way. And it means a lot to some of my patients like it really does. And I can see that and that means so much to me. Um, but I think even for people who I'm just meeting them like for one time in the hospital on a consultation service or, um, you know, they haven't looked kind of into what my history is. Um, I just I do think I have a lot of insight that helps, you know, navigate and helps like access, you know, some of these hard decisions, um, you know, some of these existential questions that sometimes like it's easier to just say, well, you could do the radiation or you could not do the radiation. And those are your choices. Um, but I think I'm always willing and interested if it's helpful to people to like sit with them and like try to figure out like what what is the real choice that you're trying to make? Like, what are you actually weighing? Right. Like, is it that you are um, worried that you're going to disappoint someone by not doing this? Like, are you terrified about this and trying to figure out ways to hold that terror in a way that doesn't destroy you, right? Like, are you so angry? Like, one of my patients the other day was just like, I'm just so angry about this. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, 
like that makes so much sense to be so angry and like let's talk about that a little bit like right like how do we not let that anger destroy your life basically so I think I am like always interested in working with patients as I have worked I think and continue to work with myself about like what narratives can make your life livable and then maybe even joyful like I have had a great life (laughs) like I continue to have a great life and I think that that is hard for a lot of people to believe right but I think again it's like uh, it's hard to know what someone's life is like right unless you're inside it Um, and great life and really hard life are not mutually exclusive things at all when you say narrative saved your life and you, and part of it is not embracing the battle metaphor that is so pervasive in culture. But I suspect there's more to it than that. It, so on some level, it's choosing not to live one metaphor. But but what narrative have you chosen to to live, and how do you feel like that saved you? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's like a variety of narratives. Like I think I am like very open to. Um, new ideas or pathways or approaches being revealed to me that I didn't know about like the moment before. And I think that that has really helped me just in terms of like that um, it does not serve me, I think, with all of the, you know, health history that I've had and the possibilities of future to be like really wedded to one way of doing things or that like this is how things have to be or you have to do them in this order Um, and that like all the tools that you might need to get through something in the future you probably don't have right now Mm -hmm. and that's okay and like they might come to you at some point you know um, and not like magically out of the sky but you like might be attuned to look for them at that time when you need them. Um, I think additionally, like I have been really invested in um, the pursuit of joy as like part of like my practice of how I do both my work and my life. Like I think that I am just always interested in like how can we create um, environments that are better for all of us. Um, And so I think I you know, really remain committed to like the fact that like we can really change the way that things are done and that that might be small at first, but that it's really going to matter to some people. We haven't really talked about your genetic diagnosis. And so I think it would be helpful for anyone who's listening to hear a little bit about what that is and how that came to you. But I also think back to this theme of narrative that that introduced a whole set of concerns and uncertainty about what your life would look like. And I'm curious how the story you tell yourself about who you are and how you live your life has helped you deal with that genetic diagnosis. Yeah, so the genetic diagnosis, so I have a mutation in the TP53 gene, so colloquially P53. Um, which is basically make sure that the cells stay in line, essentially, that if, you know, they were to become, you know, sort of, I think this was from a former professor from my medical school that cancer cells are um, deranged and ambitious. Um, And I really like that. So it keeps them from being deranged and ambitious. But I don't have, you know, both copies of that that you would need to keep those cells from becoming deranged and ambitious. So they do or they are more likely to. Um, And so, you know, most people with this condition, which, um, you know, the eponym is Lee-Fraumani syndrome, um, have, you know, many cancers throughout their lifetime. But yes, I think getting the diagnosis, you know, certainly was in part a relief um, because it, you know, provided an organizing framework for the things that had happened to me. Um, I also wasn't in a rush to get the diagnosis, which I think surprised a lot of physicians of like, 
because I think we still talk about genetic testing in terms of like, oh, and we'll just add on genetic testing, you know, and I was sort of, you know, again, like, okay, great. Well, what, how is that going to help us decide what treatments I'm going to get or, you know, and they were like, oh, well, it won't really change anything. And I was like, well, I mean, it will change everything for me personally. So, you know, if it (laughs) won't change any of the treatments, then like, let's wait until we're like in a better place personally. Um, (laughs) So I think that was, you know, one choice that I made, you know, to get that choice, like right before the decision about radiation, um, which again, another like lovely irony of being a radiation oncologist with like a condition that like potentially makes you like more sensitive to radiation. Um, So I did that. And I think that was like, you know, a a time that, you know, it felt like this, you know, might be impactful for my care. So I wanted to know about it. Um, I think it, you know, again, I think it, depending upon what narrative you have around that, it definitely has the potential to make you terrified about living in the world. Um, Because there's just this like waiting aspect that you could sort of choose to think about. Um, But I think that there's also just, you know, sort of another narrative, which is just sort of like, you know, this is the way that I was made, like for better and for worse, right? Like I, like this is the life that I have. Um, And like, would it be nice if there were, you know, a gene therapy, like, it would be nice to be able to think about that choice, right? But again, I think that that gets into really sticky territory um, that borders on and sometimes totally inhabits the the eugenicist uh, framework of thinking about things. Like, I think it was really um, disheartening to me that, like, when I was trying to make choices about reproduction that the default assumption would be that I would do anything with any amount of money to not ever have a child have this diagnosis, which, again, I think on its face can seem really positive um, because you're no one, no one would want to pass suffering on to their children But suffering is unfortunately part of the experience of being alive. And saying that you would never want to have a child with this diagnosis really implies that I shouldn't exist Mm -hmm. in a way. Um, That like no one would want to live the way that you do. And so I think, again, another set of stories that's been really affirming to me Um, And I think a learning point for me as someone who like has been, you know, somewhat indoctrinated in medicine, um, just like how ableist a lot of our assumptions are um, in terms of like what you would or what you would not want to have to be alive in a meaningful way and even how we like define quality of life and choice. Mm -hmm. So again, it's just like, this is my life. Like a lot of things would probably make it easier. Um, But a lot of those things again are like system level things, like having better access to cancer care, like throughout the spectrum, like not worrying if I, change jobs if I'll like have access to cancer screening and an oncologist Um, you know having better disability coverage like life insurance a social safety net those would all make my life a lot easier and nothing would have to change about my genome yeah how did you deal with that pressure as you were facing questions about whether or not to have a baby and also what to do about genetic testing around getting pregnant? Yeah, I mean, I think it was sort of a, a another place where like we had to kind of make our own way there um, because again, I like looked and looked for like experiences of people with Lee Romani who'd like made choices around reproduction that were, you know, not um, just pre 
implantation genetic counseling and testing, um, you know, experiences of parents. Um, and again, I think like finding literature from disabled folks was like the most helpful, um, you know, people with Down syndrome, you know, people living with like all kinds of developmental disabilities um, and like just how they were living their lives. And I think we just, you know, decided that we would, you know, figure it out between like my husband and I. Um, I think that like listening to, um, again, like Lucy Kalanithi talk a little bit about her and Paul's decision to have a child um, was also really helpful because I think, again, another part of it was like thinking about, well, does it even make sense? Like regardless of what genetics I may or may not pass on, um, I am probably not going to be here for as long as I would like to be. And so like, is that fair or right? Um but again, I think it just like speaks to the fact that like none of us have a crystal ball and that no one like that, you know, reproduction and like having and raising children isn't perfect. Like really all you have is like the love that you have right in the community that you've cultivated. And so like we have that. Like, we have a lot of love. We have a tremendous community of people. Um, and that's sort of like what we went forward with. I love that. I'm struck also in your telling of the story, you know, as we have these advances in what we know about our own genomes and what we can predict about the genomes of, of people's offspring, that in the end, the human instinct is to turn to story more than it is sometimes to turn to the information and that that what you found solace in were the stories of other people living with disability or the story about Lucy and Paul deciding to have a child despite what Paul was going through at that time. For those who don't know, Paul had stage four lung cancer, I think, at the time that they decided to have a baby and ended up dying shortly after her birth. And, you know, I always find that sort of affirming in terms of the, not just the need for literature and art in our world, but also the fundamental role of the physician, like the, the good physician who can recognize that need for some sort of communication of the fundamental humanity uh, within the decision anybody's trying to make within some body of information that they've been given or a choice that they've been given. Yeah, because the information, like number one, like the story is information. And number two, like some of the like scientific detail, you will tell a story about it. Like it just depends on what story. Like we don't like information doesn't sit kind of pristine objective on a shelf. Um, and so I think it is just, you know, engaging with like, well, what are the stories that make sense for you around this? Right. And it, I mean, it is something that I think I, you know, implicitly talk a little bit with my patients about, like, if they're making a decision between like radiation and surgery for prostate cancer, um, a lot of times, like, there's just, you know, one of the two treatments that, like, speaks to them in some way, even if after they've heard, like, this and that fact and the other fact. Um, and, you know, I really think about it like bad things happen in the world. Like, you could choose one and something bad will happen. You could choose the other. Something bad will happen. Like, we never know the counterfactual. Um, so I do really think that, like, having a story that makes sense to you as the patient around that choice Again, like both choices being about the same in terms of how well they're going to cure your cancer, having really different side effects. Like if the story around radiation doesn't make sense to you, like that probably isn't the treatment to choose because like everything's going to have some side effects. And so then if you didn't think that was the thing you wanted and then you do it and then bad things happen, like that's just a terrible story to live with. And I find it's true in terms of like how satisfied people are with the decision. Um, I want to switch gears and 
I want to stay with this narrative theme, but I want to think about the narratives that we carry as doctors and how that pertains to your work. And specifically, I've spoken to you before about the narrative of the patient who says, I don't want anything more or I don't want any more treatment and how as physicians, I worry that that's a very easy narrative to accept um, without sort of probing the narrative's origins. And I think that in many ways you've developed a role in your clinical work where you get called to talk to people who've sort of said, I don't, I don't want this treatment and to sort of help them dissect that narrative so that you can figure out where it's coming from and if that's really the stories the story that they want to live. Yeah, I really like seeing patients who, you know, the system considers like not engaged in their care. Like I like, you know, you've had like three no shows. Like I would love to see you in my clinic. <laughs> um, <laughs> and again, not to like convince anyone, because I don't think that that's like the role at all. Um, I think it is just the role is like, really, I think, as you said, like trying to get to the bottom of the story and, you know, trying to make sure that like, you know, they're they have had the opportunity to sit with someone um, and get the questions that they have answered. Right. Or to like have new questions posed that like they may not have had the opportunity to consider, um, you know, in really unrushed plain language um and so i find that like very important um again i think because it's such an easy narrative to accept um that someone like doesn't want any treatment for certain types of people right where we expect that narrative to be true um i think that's when i see people accepting it more readily right um when you try to think of like, well, of course they wouldn't want that or, you know, of course they're not compliant with care, um, which again, like thinking about non-compliance, you know, instead of like adherence or like the ability to adhere to care. Um, and so I, you know, I'm always interested in just like trying to get to the bottom of that. So I think, again, you're just like, it's such a systems problem. And then we're attributing it to an individual um, who probably on the other side has the systems problem of like maybe not having, you know, a family member who can explain the treatment to them when like the doctor that they saw explained it in all of five minutes. Right. Um, or, you know, someone who comes from a long way away and is wondering, like, how they're actually going to get to the cancer center every day for this treatment that you told them they had to have. Or how they're going to get time off of work to get that treatment when they need their job to keep their health insurance and to keep their family housed. Um, so I think it is, again, like trying to think of, like, both levels that I am just like, for myself that I want everyone to have the opportunity to, again, like make either an informed or a shared decision, like depending upon what's more appropriate. Um, and if they've had that, then like, great, like they can feel comfortable with like the narrative as it is. Like it's not necessarily my role at this point to like pick them up at their home. Um, but, you know, it is my job to say, like, are there transport access resources that we can help them get to? Like, if we uncover that and we un only uncover it because we have a little bit of time to get to know each other. Um, and then I guess it goes back to, like, the muffin question. I was thinking that the whole time. I totally was. <laughs> it's the muffin problem. Yes. Yeah. It's always the muffin problem of, like, what is the muffin for this person? Like, what's the reason that you want to leave, right? Um, and, you know, sometimes it was like, well, I don't trust you guys here. And my response to that is like, yeah, you probably shouldn't. Like, I'm not going to tell you to trust us. So, like, that's not what I am here to talk to you about. Like, I'm just here to talk to you about the things that I hope we can offer for you that I think are good for these reasons. And you actually don't have to trust any of them. But also at the same time, like, 
I don't think it's worth it for you as an individual patient to wait until we are a totally trustworthy institution also. And like both can be true. A lot of times people will bring in the experience of a family member, which again, I think is such important experience to bring to the table, but that they had, you know, such a different cancer in such a different area and had such different treatments. Um, So again, just really trying to sort of sit down and bring those experiences in, but sort of try to say that, you know, some of the things about that experience, you know, might be different. And I think for you, like, this is what we're thinking will be helpful for you. And I think also just sitting with people and sort of saying that, like, starting on this journey is not giving up your agency, too. Because I think a lot of times it's like, oh, we recommend that you're, you know, you do a year of this and two years of this. And, you know, but just that, like, I will be seeing you, you know, every three months or every six months. And like, so think of it like that is our goal for these reasons, but that you're not just like sort of giving it over and like no matter what's happening in your life or what's changed or how miserable you are or how hard it is, we're just going to keep going because you've like signed in and now like you're ours and like (laughs) you can't like act as a human being who has like needs and and preferences. Um, And I think also just that like a lot of times people just again sort of like don't want to be in the medical system because like they might not have a physician who's who is listening to them or they might have to give up a lot of agency to have that discussion or they like would rather just you know they know that like the physician will just like leave the encounter if they start to like complain right um i think that like getting a lot of that out in the space can be really helpful to see like what direction we're going to go. And I think it's often like patients who don't feel comfortable doing that. And like sometimes they don't feel comfortable doing that with me either. Then I'm like, ah, I feel like this is going to be challenging because like, yeah, clearly you just like don't think that this is going to be a space at all that you think you can engage with, you know, even maybe to get something that I think you I think you might find useful. Um, So I think those are the people that I often worry about. And again, it's like I you can't you're not responsible entirely for someone else's life. And like we do have some responsibility to each other. And so I feel like I just try to like live out that responsibility of like, you know, you you hopefully, you know, we're in this relationship where you've like asked for some of my expertise and listening. Um, And I hope that I've given that to you in a way that is meaningful and useful and the outcome, you know, we don't have as much control over that as as we would like to think. My guest is Shakina Elmore, an extraordinary empathic and insightful radiation oncologist, thinker, and patient whisperer who will go down in history as the originator of the muffin question. I'm so thankful to you for coming on and talking to me. (laughs) You have so much wisdom to impart to the world, so thank you. It was a pleasure, as always, to get to talk with you. 